Right now is um, we're going to go ahead and bring up our brother, Bill McCurran. We're going to need to get your s slides ready, Bill. So, so we're, we're getting ready for a very uplifting <laughs> topic, right? Yeah, hell. So anyway, Bill... Um, Usually in the past when I've heard you um, share your, who you are as an introduction, you usually say a male model. So that's what he, that's what he was. He was a male model. <laughs> Let's see if this works. Yeah, here we go. Well, um, so I, I thought it's really important to pick an uplifting message, uh, but I couldn't find one. So I said instead, I'd talk about hell, because it's just been on my mind, given what's happening in the world. So I started working on this personally, just, just what does the Bible actually say about hell? Back in early... Uh, this year, early this year, just as a personal study. And uh, it, it's been very illuminating. And the one thing I asked, I said, God, I'm not asking for any vision, and I'm not asking for any experience. I'm just, and I meant that. I'm just, I want wisdom and knowledge to learn about hell from your your point of view. So that's that's what I'm uh, doing. And when I was uh, a young lawyer, I heard this joke about uh, a guy who went to hell and Satan has him and he's, he just seems to be happy-go-lucky. And so Satan says, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn up the heat. And he turned up the heat and went back and the guy's still just happy-go-lucky. So Satan does this a couple of times. The guy's still happy-go-lucky. And so Satan said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn off all the heat. I'm going to make it freezing in here. And then the guy really started celebrating. And he was shouting, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> It'll slowly sink in. <laughs> I remember when I was a young Christian, I was literally standing, there were a bunch of older lawyers in my firm, and there were three firms, and their lead older partners were a network of friends, and they were hard-drinking, hard-charging guys, and um, they took me out to lunch once, and I, by this time I was a, a believer, but I was a very young believer, and they were joking about hell, and one of them said, um, some, some, he said, some old lady said, you're just gonna go to hell. What do you think about that? And he, his response was, well, I'll be so busy shaking my friend's hands, I won't have time to worry. Um, but I sat there and I said, 
And I have, even long before I did that study, it's just something that weighed on my, on my spirit. Um, so with that, let's open up in prayer. Lord God, you are the father and creator of all. You are infinitely good. You are the God who loves and delights in showing mercy. And you are also a God of wrath. Your wrath is holy and it is as perfect as your love is holy and perfect. This evening, please give us understanding into your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to just acknowledge somebody I love deeply, Winston Parker in the back, because when I was a young Christian, it was his example that motivated me profoundly. It was his example. All right, so I'm going to walk you through an outline um, this is what I, oh, and let me tell you, I'm going to go, I got a lot of material. I'm going to go through it systematically rather quickly, but all my notes, my practice is to turn over my notes to the conference organizers. If you want them, ask and, and they'll send them out. I put them in PDF form. I want you to use it as much or as little as you see fit. So don't get worried about not being able to, um, to keep up. So what I'm going to deal with is oh, I see how they do it. Okay. So first, I'm going to answer these questions in this order. What is hell? Is hell real? Does it actually exist? Why does it exist? What is the purpose of hell? Who occupies hell? Does God send people to hell? What is hell like? Where is it? Is hell fair? Does the punishment fit the crime? Are there gradations in hell? Or is hell the same for everyone? And after death, can anyone get out of hell? Now my key text is from Luke 16. I've got a lot of verses, but this verse kept kept coming up in my study, so I'm going to read it because I'm going to refer to it um, several times during my talk. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. When he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what is hell? It is the ultimate fruit of the sins that are not covered by the blood of Christ. I may be hitting the wrong button. Oh, okay, I see what I'm doing. Okay, so hell is the ultimate fruit of the sins that are not covered by the blood of Christ. In the New Testament, hell is the Greek word Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, an actual place that existed outside Jerusalem. This name was given to an area in South Jerusalem which acquired a bad reputation because sacrifice were offered in it to Moloch in the days of Ahaz and Manasseh. And also it was like a city dump where they burned things and the, the the fires in the, in the trash heap, so to say, were spontaneous. Matthew 5, verse 22, Jesus says to you, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. The council and Gehenna are both places where judgment occurs. It is contrasted with the kingdom of heaven, also a very real place. Jesus is life. Death, then, is the absence of Jesus in one's life for eternity. The Bible says believer, believers have eternal life, but unbelievers have unending agony. They are alive. It uses a very different word for life because it would not be life as you and I would, would know it, it is existence, but it is an undying, eternal existence, but it is not life in the sense that we have the life promised in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to show you, uh, I, I hope I showed it up on here. No, I didn't. So I'm going to give you, a, I thought I did, but I have a slide. <clears throat> it's a table contrasting heaven and hell so that you get 
and this is based on Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Zoe is the word there, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in heaven is a gift. Hell is wages. Heaven is not earned. Hell is earned. Heaven people don't deserve what they receive. Hell people deserve what they receive. Heaven. Jesus got what we deserve so that we could get what Jesus deserves. Hell is people get what they deserve on their own. Jesus earned for us hell people earned and worked for themselves. Heaven is a gift given in full for eternity. Grace upon grace. Hell is wages given in full for eternity. Heaven is unfair because it was purchased by the blood of the only righteous man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is fair. Not one person in hell will receive more than he earned. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about eternal life and eternal punishment. He talks about it a lot in the Bible. In fact, nobody talks about hell in the Bible more than Jesus. Let me give you an example from Matthew 25. It's kind of a long verse, but it's an important verse. It's Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the Lord will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? 
or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal life and eternal punishment use the same Greek word for eternal. It is the word ionios, and it means perpetual, eternal, everlasting, forever. The Greek word used in eternal life is zoe, from which we get the word zoology. But that word is not used in talking about the eternal existence of those who live or die in hell apart from Jesus. Because life apart from God is existence devoid of all vitality and beauty that come from God alone. So heaven <clears throat> is complete grace. Grace upon grace. Hell is the complete absence of grace. Heaven, no sun, because Jesus is our light. Hell, total darkness. Heaven, fullness of life. Hell, emotional and spiritual emptiness. Heaven, no death. Hell, no life. Heaven, satisfaction. Hell, dissatisfaction. Heaven, joy. Hell, regret. Heaven, gratitude. Hell, anger. Heaven, fulfillment. Hell, unsatisfied longing. Heaven, intimacy with God. Hell, alienation from God. Heaven, intimacy with everyone. Hell, alienated from everyone. Heaven, constant newness, excitement, and discovery. Hell, agonizing boredom and sameness. Heaven, unbroken peace. Hell, unending conflict. There is a wonderful Irish <clears throat> evangelist and missionary named Miles McKee. He wrote this. Since all things are now new, we have no time to run around the place feeling guilty. What do we have to feel guilty about? All the rotten, wretched things we have ever done are under the blood. They are forgiven, forgotten, buried, and done away with in Christ. I know we find this very hard to believe, but the more we bathe in the finished work, the stronger our faith grows. We used to be under a curse as lawbreakers, but now Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. God now reckons us as righteous. So is hell real? Does it really exist? Let me ask you a question. What is the greatest myth about hell? Anybody? 
that it's going to be some kind of party. What else? Say it. Satan rules it. What else? It's not real. That's why people can joke about it. I remember as a kid growing up, and one of the phrases we used to use is, man, go go to hell. Without any understanding of what that meant. And so that's one of Satan's greatest tricks, that hell is a myth. A.W. Pink, who is a wonderful theologian, now he's written something I'm, I endorse, but I don't know if I endorse it 100%. He says, God's love is a holy love. And because it is such, he hates all evil. It is written, quoting from Psalm 5, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Startling as it may sound, it is nevertheless a fact that scriptures speak more frequently of God's anger and wrath than they do of his love and compassion. In John 9, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. In Luke 12, 49, he's saying, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. God looks at the unholiness of the world, and it just distresses him. He can't wait to do away with it. Jesus longs for the judgment to come to bring an end to sin and sinners, to uphold justice and retribution against the Satans. How much sin can a holy God tolerate? Jesus said again, hearkening back to Matthew 25, these will go away into eternal punishment. And the phrase there is used that it is a place of reckoning where debts are paid. A horrible place of eternal, unrelieved, unrelenting, never ceasing punishment. Jesus says in Mark 9, hell is where wormed, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A place of intense and unrelieved suffering. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I was on the bench, the doctors, uh, I went in for a routine medical exam and the doctor said, something's not right in your chest and they did a series of scans and I had a tumor the size of a orange between my rib cage and my lungs and they said look we've got to take this out immediately and he said look I'm going to warn you that when we take it out we'll test it to see whether it's benign or malignant but I'm going to tell you, this is the most painful, one of the most painful surgeries we do. Your recovery will be agonizing. 
And by God's mercy, my schwannoma, as it's called, was benign. In order to do the surgery, they don't cut the rib because they've learned the, heels will, the, the rib will not heal properly. So they break it. And when they break it, it heals properly. So every time you breathe, it's agonizing. And the doctor said, look, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be horrible for two months, and then it will stop. And during that two-month period, I would just gnash my teeth. The pain, I couldn't turn, I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit. I just gnashed my teeth together. That's how bad the pain was. And Jesus says, that's what will happen. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a physical suffering, it's pain. It is emotional and psychic suffering, self-loathing, regret, blaming God. It is spiritual suffering. Like the rich Pharisee in the story from Luke 16, guilt and regret. Walt once said to me, and I think he said it in a group setting, what people will regret the most in hell is their missed opportunities to know God. And that just reverberated in my spirit. All the roads not taken. The suffering from what had once been pleasures. The deep pain of greed, lust, hatred, and an unforgiving spirit. And Paul writes something interesting in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me tell you on the bench, it was, I don't know that I ever met a criminal defendant who did not regret what he had done, but there were very few who were remorseful. What they regretted was getting caught Hell is real. It is a place, not simply a state of mind, as some people assert. And I am sure of the three following things. First, the people in hell will rage if we were to ask them, is hell real or a state of mind? Second, the chief regret for people in hell will be all their missed opportunities to know Jesus Christ. And third, I deserve hell. But Jesus paid the price for me, and that is why I'm not going. And I just lift up my hands in praise and gratitude. I do not understand why he would save me, but I rejoice in the fact that he has. Let me share a very painful encounter I had recently. This guy angrily confronted me. He called me a hypocrite, a phony, fake. Everything he said was true. I did everything he accused me of. I couldn't argue with him. 
After he finished, I did. I stood there, hung my head, and did four things inwardly. First, I admitted that he was right. Second, I recited Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to myself. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Third, I took a deep breath. And fourth, I turned away from the mirror. And again committed to trust Christ as his salvation. Friends, we are saved by grace. It is not only God's mercy to which we commend ourselves, we rely even more on his justice. There is a double jeopardy clause in the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which prohibits the government from prosecuting individuals more than one time for the same offense and from imposing more than one punishment for a single offense. So let me read 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness, all unrighteousness. Why faithful and just? Why does he say just? Because the penalty has already been paid. The crime has already been punished. And because he is perfect love and perfect justice, since his son has already borne the penalty for our crime, he will not impose it on us. And that is why we are taught that he is faithful and just. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Next question. Why does hell exist? What is the purpose of hell? Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Imagine this scene. It was at the, he was at, Jesus was at the Gadarenes and two men are possessed by demons. And Jesus cast out the demons and ordered them into nearby pigs. And the demons in the two men cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Cried out is the Greek word kratso. That means to shriek or scream because they know their end. They don't have a choice. Grace is not available to the fallen angels. They cannot repent. It is beyond them. Jude 6 and 7. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, 
giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are setting forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In 2 Peter 2, Peter says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Hell was created for Satan and the angels, but it will be occupied also by all those who reject Christ. So what is hell like? What is hell like? Hell is the complete absence of God. The restraint of the Holy Spirit is completely absent. Man in his unrestrained sin and the demons in the unrestrained wickedness populate hell. Now let me explain uh, common grace. Matthew, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sins rain on the just and on the unjust. In Psalm 145, 9, it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In Acts 14, Nevertheless, God left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Gentlemen, all good things are an expression of God's nature. His love, his peace, his harmony, his community, his contentment, joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, well-being, vitality, purpose, thankfulness, wonder. Common grace causes us to think that good things exist apart from Christ. That's the danger of falling into that trap. You know, evil people can get rich. Evil people can be famous and have great bodies and everything seems to be going their way. Their crops don't fail. This common grace, God just pours out this common grace on the wicked and on the just. But gentlemen, hell is the absence of Jesus Christ and therefore the absence of his person, his personality, his attributes, and his character. 
That means that hell has no light, no love, no peace, no harmony, no contentment, no satisfaction, no self-fulfillment, no rest, no beauty, no wisdom, no forgiveness, no joy, no laughter, no gladness, no gratitude, no meaning. Just go on and on and on. It's hard for you to even imagine that, isn't it? Because we are so sometimes blindly accustomed to God's goodness that we can't imagine the absence of his goodness. But gentlemen, in hell, all of God's character will be absent except his wrath. From the story of Lazarus, we learn at least the following. That hell is a place of unrelenting torment. The people there are in anguish. And the people are in flames. Now listen. Is that literal language? Or is it figurative little language? Are there real flames? Or does it just symbolize flames? I suggest to you that it's real flames, but I don't care. Because for the people in hell, that will be a foolish discussion. And if we were to bring it up to them and shout across the chasm, are they real flames? All they would do is curse at us for such a stupid question. Does God send people to hell? So I submit to you that people are born hell bound because of our sinful nature. John 3, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe him is what? Condemned already. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Let me give you just a quick analogy. We are on a ship, beautiful ship, disco balls, great restaurants. The whole thing is beautiful. It, the only problem is it's sinking. <clears throat> and God comes to us with a lifeboat and pleads with us to abandon this ship because it's sinking slowly, <clears throat> but it is sinking. He brings this lifeboat and he keeps the lifeboat to travel with them all the way. Please come aboard. Please come. And the, the ship sinks. And so he brings a lifeboat. Climb into the lifeboat. And the people refuse. Such people cannot blame God for drowning them. People march to hell on the road they build to get there. Who will be in hell? Hell will be populated by demons 
and the unsaved. There are no other occupants. Revelation 2010, it says, and the devil that deceived them will be cast, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 21. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. They're alive, but it's like death. Revelation 20, 14 through 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said to the Pharisees who condemned him, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Hell is for those who hate God. What is the greatest commandment? And if you don't do that, the Bible says you hate God. There's no middle ground. You can't say, I like God. You either love him or you hate him. Isaiah 66, 3 to 4. These have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Gentlemen, there are many roads that lead to hell, but each man designs builds and traverses his own road to hell. There's only one way to escape hell, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I was listening to um, a program, and it had interviews from famous people and somehow people who do these interviews think that God is God by vote. Um, and if they don't approve what he does, he'll change. Um, and so they said, well, I just can't believe in a God who would what? Send people to hell. That's just not fair. So the question is, is hell fair? Is the punishment excessive? So I want to talk to you about the correctness of eternal punishment. So first of all, let me tell you that the sovereign, not the criminal, gets to determine the nature of the punishment and the length of the punishment. 
fairness requires that the sovereign inform a person before the crime of what the punishment could be. But it is the sovereign's decision. Gentlemen, what society ever existed anywhere that takes the criminal, catches him in the act, and then asks, well, what do you think your punishment should be? Nobody, no society does that. And so the people who say, well, you know, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I say, well, who gets to determine it? If God, the one wrong, cannot, and the sovereign, who gets to determine it? You? <laughs> Next point on this same issue. In human law, the punishment is not always proportionate to the crime. For example, a man who commits a murder may face the death sentence. Alternatively, he may face life in prison but without the possibility of parole. Okay? So he may say it's not fair for me to spend 60 years in prison. It's it's disproportionate to the crime. And society says, well, we don't care what you think. Next, the criminal may prefer capital punishment to a lifetime of punishment. But it is the sovereign who makes that choice, not the criminal. Guys, there's an actual court case. It's an actual case. You can look it up. A man uh, seeks to rob a postal office. He kills the postmaster in the process. The punishment is um, death by hanging. The evidence is overwhelming. He's condemned to die by hanging. Someone knows, has a personal relationship with the President of the United States and pleads for clemency and asks the president to annul the sentence. Show clemency. And the murderer was taken on the, on the day he was to be hanged. They took the pardon to him, signed by the president, and he refused to accept it. So the question for the court that the appeals court had to decide was what was the effect of the rejected pardon? This is almost verbatim from the decision. A pardon rejected is no pardon at all, and he was hanged. Gentlemen, maybe one of you is in that spot or you know somebody in that spot. The pardon is being handed to you right now. And Jesus is pleading with you to take it. What is your response? So hell, is it fair? Oh yes, it's fair. It's also fair because people in hell continue to sin. It's not like once they go to hell, the sin stops. Again, turning back to Luke. 
The Pharisee in torment speaking to Abraham who was in paradise said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, no, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Gentlemen, do you understand what the rich man is saying? God, it is your fault that I'm here. It's your doing that I am here. No one warned me. Okay, they warned me, but it wasn't clear. It was inadequate. I didn't have the opportunity to really weigh the consequences of my actions. And because of the inadequate warning, I never had a chance to make the right decision. God! What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. So what is the punishment if we violate that? And we blame God for our own wrongdoing. They continue to do that in hell. They regret, but they do not exhibit remorse. There is no place for grace in hell. Sinners in hell never repent. This punishment, therefore, is retributive and not restorative. The people continue to hate God to rebel against him, to defame him, to blame him for their plight. Their sin in hell is worse than their sin on earth because the Holy Spirit does not, is not there to constrain them. They are as evil as they want to be. As already explained earlier, hell is the absence of God, which is what the people in hell wanted while alive. I was watching a debate between uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was a famous atheist from England, who uh, um, died of cancer in 2011. And Hitchens said for, that for him, hell would be being in the presence of God. Do you hear that? He described heaven as torture because he didn't want to be forced to praise God whom he likened to a celestial North Korea. Certainly he's in hell now and no doubt it is God's fault that he is there. But the people in hell were 100% in charge of their decision. Atheist Stephen Fry is an English actor, broadcaster, comedian, director, very articulate, well-known atheist. 
and he considers God's created world utterly evil and asks this question. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? I wouldn't want to get into heaven on his terms. His terms are wrong. Last point on this is heaven is hell fair, is that capital punishment does not expiate the harm or avenge the wrong. I mean, you see this on television on some of these live court dramas where the defendant who has murdered somebody, um, the, the family gets to address. And you know, they always say something like, we will never be able to hug our daughter again. We will n our son will never give us grandchildren. We wake up every morning with pain and ache in our hearts. And one becomes a, uh, an alcoholic and one may commit suicide. All these ramifications exist from that person's act. And he has to pay for them. It may be simply too easy to just have capital punishment. Most criminals doesn't bother them. When I was on the bench, I had a case involving a college student who played a malicious prank on his landlord because she did not allow his girlfriend to spend the night. As a direct result of her malicious prank, the woman lost her home. Her only child died six months after the lost the home because the white, the mother had built the home, which she was renting on a long-term basis, to deal with her daughter's autoimmune disease. So it was perfectly sealed. Her daughter couldn't go out much, but inside her, she was protected and healthy and well. But they were kicked out, and the girl died six months later. The grandmother, who deeply loved her granddaughter, died of a broken heart. The young man who did that malicious prank doesn't know anything about it. He was a foreign student. He probably jokes today about the prank he pulled on this uptight woman back in San Diego. Gentlemen, there are things that we do, sins that we commit, whose repercussions of we are completely ignorant of. We do not understand what has happened because of our sins. And we pay for those in hell. Now he goes to hell and he said, all I did was prank her and that's all. No, that's not all. John, look at what happened from that sin. This is what Jesus has done for us on the cross, brothers. The things, the sins of which you and I are completely ignorant because we can't follow the repercussions of our sin. He paid for all of those. And I believe, I believe that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to let us see the ramifications of our sin, not for purposes 
of judgment. He's borne that cross. But for purposes of praise, we'll be overcome anew with the grandeur of our salvation. God will judge according to our deeds in life. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the severity and duration of punishment are influenced by the ongoing consequences of our sins and the severity of those consequences. That we are ignorant of them doesn't mitigate our punishment. Society may ignore the grievous wrong and drape the wrongdoer in fame and wealth. So for a period of time, people like Hitler, Stalin, Jeffrey Epstein, who flew in underage girls to his private island and then had sex with them, they may, they may have great renown, they may have great famous, and people applaud when they walk through the door. No, brothers. Society may ignore their wrongs, but God doesn't. God has given man ample warning of hell, but men ignore the warning. Therefore, people are responsible for their own hell. Let's say you're suffering from a chronic wound that hurts you. There's one doctor in the whole world that has the power to treat your wounds and heal you. But you hate that doctor and everything he stands for. You would rather suffer from your condition forever than approach the one you hate and ask for healing. Well then, whose fault is that? Okay, next. Hell is not the same for everyone. There are gradations of hell. We know that all believers go to heaven by grace. However, there will also be rewards in heaven. So heaven won't be the same for everyone. Trust me, I'm going to be glad that I'm there. But in all likelihood, Winston's going to have a much bigger house than me. And I'll go by to visit Winston you know, and Winston being the gentleman he is, he's going to invite me in in his Olympic-sized swimming pool, and I'm going to jump in it. But I'm, I'm not going to be up there and say, man, I'm, I'm, why am I here? I don't want to be here. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Gentlemen, for, um, could you bring that chair over for me? Any chair. Um, you have to excuse me every once in a while that my back surgery starts kicking up and my legs go numb. Could you put it here for me? Thank you. And I have to sit down and just relieve it, then I'll be all right. Thank you so much. Um, Some of you won't be able to see me, but can praise God for that blessing. <laughs> so, now think of this. Jesus says that he's going to reward everything we do. 
This is a gloriously insane promise. He doesn't reward us on the outcome of which he is the sovereign governor. He rewards us for the try. Think of that. You throw a party, you invite 20 people to come to Christ, you share the gospel, not one does. And you think it's a failure. God in heaven is saying, way to go. Way to go. We can't lose. Think of it. All you need is to try. And all you, you need the want and you need to try. And he says, I'm going to reward that. Goodness gracious. This is a deal that we cannot turn down. And it doesn't matter what your education is, how smart you are. You may be so inarticulate. But man, God is just saying, oh man, you, you just wait till you get to heaven. All right. Hell will be a terrible place for every occupant, but it will be worse for some than others. Hitler's hell will be worse than the hell for your neighbor. But no one in hell will ever say, well, this ain't so bad. For everyone in hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And for everyone in heaven, there will be rejoicing. We will always say, oh, I never imagined it could be this good. Let me read from Luke 12. And that servant who knew his master's will but not did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him will be much required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Perhaps that is why there is no redemption for fallen angels. They dwelt in the presence of God from the day they were created. They knew his glory and majesty. How could they possibly rebel? I think that knowledge prevents them from having any access to grace. And that leads to my final point, gentlemen, and that is there is no exit out of hell. The story of Lazarus and the rich man uh, demonstrate to me that there was no way out for the rich man and Abraham did not tell him that his time in hell would one day expire. Hang on. Jesus warned that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He says that in several places. So gentlemen, I, <clears throat> I just want to ask this question. I want to scare the hell out of you. I want you tonight to throw up your hands in praise at the gracious Lord Jesus who bore our sin and all the consequences of all our sins so that we would not have to bear eternal punishment, but
but live with him in eternity forever. And then he rewards us. This is insane. He rewards us on top of it. This is a gracious God who delights in showing mercy, who is in abundant in loving kindness. Questions? And again, I'm sending my notes out, okay? Questions or comments? Questions or comments? Just more of a comment. I had, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about levels in hell, and if there were levels, you answer that question. Appreciate that. And then the other was, you know, thinking how God's grace is poured on the believers and the unbelievers here on earth. And, you know, it, for me, it's easy to, I guess, justify the atheist who denies God, but it's the, the lukewarm believer that believes in God, thinks there's a God, but not fully following God. And that's where, you know, my heart breaks for anybody who wants to help, but I would think especially for the person who feels like they know God, but then... You know, God's going to say, I don't know you. And so, uh, again, I don't, I don't know if I really have a question, but just this what's going through my mind as you're talking. That passage from Matthew 7, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What is interesting, one of the interesting things about that passage is that the people Jesus commended did not feel themselves worthy of the commendation. They were awed by grace. They said, we didn't do any of those things. And Jesus said, yes, you did. It may be small. The world may have totally ignored it. You may not even have appreciated it. He said, but I see it, and I'm going to reward it. And the people who were astounded by their punishment were self-justifying. They were excusing themselves. They said, when did we do that? We're not a, I don't remember ever doing that. I don't remember ever saying that. The rich man, I never had a chance. It's just another way of blaming God. It is re, the response should have been, Lord God, you are absolutely right. I am a fraud. I didn't do any of those. I didn't do what I should have done. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Please do not cast me from your presence. Here's a God who delights in mercy. So there may be a brother out there, and you think you have committed a sin which separates you eternally from God. You think there's no way back to the throne of grace. I don't care what that sin is that you committed. Today is the day of salvation. Whether alone in your room tonight or with a friend, you go before the Lord Jesus Christ. You get on your knees and you cry out to him and say, God, I am a sinner. There's no way I deserve your grace or your mercy. Please clothe me in your mercy. Forgive me. And this is a gracious God who will be there.
a question for you. I have a question for you. In the account we read, um, those in Abraham's bosom were looking across into Hades, and those in Hades, Gehenna, were looking across into them. Do you believe that will happen in throughout eternity? First, it is unclear whether the story of Lazarus is a, a parable or a real event. I fall on the side of it being a real event, but I don't know. I'm not dogmatic on that because in no parable did he ever give actual names. And the sense is that as he's talking to the people, some of them know who he's talking about. Jesus says that in heaven there will be no more what? There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. So I'm not sure if that means we will no longer have recollection of the people we love who rejected Christ or whether we are so imbued with the character of Christ that we will see their punishment as just and continue to rejoice in Christ. It, I don't know which that's going to be, but I am satisfied that we will not grieve we will not weep. There will be no cloud in our heaven. You, you with me? Does that does that make sense? I, I'm I'm I mean I struggled with this too. I mean, my big mama, my who loved me. I, I know I don't know, but she lived for Christ. But I keep thinking, well, there are some of my relatives that were really good people. They went to church. I think they knew Christ, but I don't know. And I don't want to go to heaven and look across some chasm and see Cousin Juno there. I'm not going to enjoy heaven if I can hear and see Cousin Juno. So God is going to do something. He is not, heaven is not going to be a Pyrrhic victory. We will be rejoicing, and our rejoicing will be heartfelt. That's how I resolved it. It's the best I can do. Bill, the only comment I would make is I think it's very likely that the people in hell will be able to see the people in heaven as part of the uh, part of the consequences of their being there. So I, I'm with you. I don't believe there will be any cloud over our heaven. But I think, again, my understanding is when Jesus uses actual names, it's a real situation, not a parable. And therefore, like you, I don't understand how we can not grieve, but I don't believe we will. But I do believe that the people who aren't there, they're in heaven, will, as part of their eternal consequence, will see the people rejoicing with God. Um, so earlier you said that you either love Christ or you hate Christ. How about for those who don't know Christ? Because if what, you don't know Christ... What's your name? Tristan. Tristan. How old are you? 16. I love it that you're 16 and you can ask a question with that kind of import. People used to say to me, well, what about the people in Africa? And, and, I, would, and I would ask... And, uh, I'm going to get to your question. This is a long way around it. Okay, Tristan? And I would ask... And I asked them, 
Why do you care? What is there in your life that indicates that you have any care about the people in Africa as opposed to asking me an academic question? How does your life exhibit any care for the people in Africa? Okay. And, I mean, generally speaking, I say, okay. You don't have any manifest concern for the people in Africa, and yet you ask the question. Do you think that your concern for the people in Africa is greater than the concern of a loving God who created them? So I'm not sure what God does, but I'm sure that he is merciful, and I'm sure that he is the God who came to earth. He did not send down, um, did any of you see this wonderful kind of science fiction movie called Contact? These beings someplace sent to earth these incredibly complicated plans on how to build this vessel that takes them through wormholes and such, and it costs a trillion dollars to build, and, you know, it, it, it just blew their minds. God could have easily done that to us. Instead, he becomes a little baby born to a Jewish woman who's not even 18 years old yet, walks the earth for three years, teaching, and then is crucified for our sins. He came to us. Such a God will make a way. And now the important question to the person who asked that question, the person in Africa has an excuse. You don't. You receive Christ. And then you send money to Africa. And you pray for the salvation of the people in Africa. You do that. So Tristan, God has a plan of salvation. That plan is his sovereign plan by election. He will bring into heaven all those whose names are written in the book of life. Now Abraham, he really didn't know anything clear at all about Jesus Christ. It said that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So God requires that we have faith, but he determines the content of our faith, Walt used to say. He will say, look, I'm going to give you this. I want you to believe this because of me. But I do know that God is more just and fair than we are. Tristan, I, Tristan, I'd love to talk with you more. I don't know if I answered your question. I just love the fact that you asked it. So if you want to talk, please come, okay? Let's talk some more. Okay. Bill, can I just say one thing? Please. I know this may not be appropriate, but uh, I was privileged to go through the Law Enforcement Academy, and one of the things you do is everybody who carries a taser has to be tased. Everybody <laughs> who carries pepper spray has to be pepper sprayed. And... Uh, my background, I've had lots of broken bones and lots of stitches. 
so I've experienced a lot of pain. But when that 50,000 volts burned through my body and I was locked up, I couldn't move, that's the worst pain I have ever experienced. And that was the longest few seconds. It seemed like an eternity. When I recovered, I thought, that was only a few seconds, and hell is forever, and there's nobody in this world, no matter what they've done, that I would want to see burn forever. And I can tell you, for Mike Williams, it transformed my ministry because I try to share Christ with everybody I can. And I have to have people like Bill and my son and others who try to back me off a little bit because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God determines the results. So I have to keep remembering I can't save anybody. But I am absolutely, as Ezekiel 33 reminds us, I am absolutely accountable for sounding the alarm. And so, Bill, thank you so much for reminding us of this truth. And that's important, guys, in Romans 1.18, the gospel really starts there when Paul says, for the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And before people can appreciate God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, they got to understand the consequences that we all deserve Amen. for our sin. Amen. So thank you, thank you for sharing.